We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 341 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Serious Problems. The previous episode ended with the crew in Earth orbit preparing for their next major task, the Translunar Injection Burn. Clock boards here in Mission Control Center on the center screen are being set up now to monitor the Translunar Injection Burn. Some 5 minutes, 43 seconds away from ignition. Booster reports that the tanks in the S-4B stage have been pressurized. The Translunar Injection Burn, abbreviated TLI, was scheduled to occur over the Pacific and would put Apollo 15 on a trajectory toward the moon. The burn involved igniting the S-4B rocket engine and firing it for approximately six minutes. This would quickly increase the spacecraft's speed to nearly 25,000 miles per hour. Apollo 15 would then shoot through the Van Allen radiation belts in less than 15 minutes, minimizing the astronauts' exposure to their radiation. You may recall these radiation belts stretch from just under 2,000 miles above the equator to more than 8,000 miles and are composed of particles highly charged with energy from the solar wind, which remain trapped within the Earth's magnetic field. As Apollo 15 passed over the tracking stations on the Earth, they received all the go signals as planned, and just as they got the final go for TLI, the crew took a quick look out the window. Dave saw the Hawaiian Islands, all of them in the blue Pacific Ocean, framed right in his window. He recalled exploring the mountains on foot. He wished he could take a picture of it. Al gazed at lightning skipping across the top of distant clouds and commented on its beauty. Jim was so overwhelmed, he said that he would almost settle for an Earth orbit mission. But Dave quickly ordered him not to say that, and everyone had a good laugh. It was true, Earth was beautiful, but they all wanted to press onward to the moon. Looking at an ignition time of 2 hours, 50 minutes, 1 second ground elapsed time. Cut off at 2 hours, 55 minutes, 54 seconds. Total spacecraft velocity at cutoff should be 
5,608.7 feet per second. Coming up on 20 seconds, mark 20 seconds to TLI ignition. Roger, ignition. Fifteen Houston, we're showing good thrust. The third stage engine relit. For more than five minutes, a soft but solid acceleration pushed the astronauts back in their couches again. To Jim, it seemed as if they were going straight up. Once again, he experienced tremendous exhilaration to be lifted up, to leave the Earth behind. Velocity building up, now 26,270, 6,700 feet per second, resulting apogee, 1,661. As their speed quickly increased, instead of falling around the Earth, they flew fast enough to climb to a point, days away, where the moon's gravity would capture them. Of course, they were shooting at a moving target, because the moon orbits Earth, they had to aim not for the moon itself, but for where the moon was going to be. It was like firing two bullets, warning them not to hit each other, but to barely miss. If they got it wrong, space was an unforgiving place. They had to trust the math in their flight plans completely. Coming up on 30,000 Pressures are steady at 40 and 30, and ordeal is tracking right on zero. Roger, 15 at three minutes. It uh, looks completely nominal to us. Roger. Coming up on 30,000 feet per second. Mark, 30,000 feet per second. Resulting apogee, 4,685 nautical miles. Okay, Houston, we have about a minute to go. We're tracking 39 and 30 on the pressures, and uh, ordeal's about zero. Houston, Roger. Looks good here. Throughout all of this, they would experience no sense of their tremendous speed. Uh, 15, Houston, we're uh, estimating cutoff about four seconds earlier than the bad time. Roger, understand. Five plus five, one. That's affirmative. Velocity rapidly approaching the TLI cutoff speed. Okay, shut down. Five plus five, one. Roger. Once the burn was successfully completed, they had time to briefly look out the window again 
Earth had already begun to shrink. Since our planet is only about 8,000 miles in diameter, and the Apollo 15 was traveling three times that distance every hour, the astronauts could already see their launch site in Florida and the rest of the southeastern United States and Cuba all in one view. Now that the burn was complete, their speed would gradually decrease as the spacecraft struggled against Earth's gravity. But eventually, they would reach a point where the moon's gravity was stronger than the Earth's and then they would accelerate again. A couple hours later, the crew had a chance to maneuver the craft and look at the Earth again. They could now see the full Earth, North and South America, Europe, Africa. They could see the blues and greens, the tans of the deserts, and the whites of a few clouds. And there was black all around the Earth. They could no longer see the band of atmosphere. It was the full Earth with the sun shining right on it, fully illuminated against the blackness of space. At roughly three and one-half hours into the flight, it was time for Al Worden to perform one of his key jobs for the mission. The Lunar Module Falcon was bolted onto the third stage. It was now time to extract it. Worden floated over to the left couch from where he could fly Endeavor and look out of the left window. The first step was to ignite the explosive bolts that connected the command and service module to the stack. And then, with a delicate pulse of thrusters, Worden edged Endeavor away. Large, hinged panels opened like petals of a flower and drifted away from the top of the stage, exposing the top hatch of the Falcon. Okay, Houston, looks like you've got a good limb in there, and uh, we're rolling now, and the uh, opening rates are stopped, and you should have a TV. Roger, uh, I haven't got the picture up here yet. Uh, stand by, and I'll give you a check on that. Okay. 15 Houston, we're getting the picture now, and uh, the uh, lamb is coming in in the lower right-hand corner of our field of view. Okay. The command and service module moved away a short distance. Then Worden very slowly rotated it 180 degrees in a leisurely move to save precious fuel. Out of the window, he spotted a panel spinning away into the blackness. The shrinking earth also fought for his attention. What a view, he remarked, then focused again on his target. Within ten minutes, they maneuvered back to the third stage. Falcon looked delicate, as if it were made of smooth tissue paper. Worden vowed to dock very carefully. The limb's round hatch looked like a dark pupil in the enormous round eye of the third stage. Worden pulsed the thrusters again a tiny fraction and nosed up toward the lunar module, head to head. 
Al ignored the hatch and focused instead on the small white target off to one side. Using an optical sight, he placed his crosshairs firmly on the center of the target. As the crosshairs drifted off, he gave the thrusters a little pulse to edge back toward dead center. Worden nailed it. The docking probe on the top of Endeavor touched the edge of the concave cone on top of the Falcon, then slowly slid down the cone into a hole barely large enough to encompass three spring-loaded latches. The only question now was, were they in far enough to latch together? Al pulsed the thrusters and pushed into the hole a little faster. The latches sprang into place and held the spacecraft loosely together. A soft dock. Houston, the centering on the picture is good now, and we're getting an excellent quality picture. Very good. We're almost there. Capture. Imagine. After the soft dock, they were still slightly misaligned with Falcon, but it was not a problem. Al retracted the docking probe, which pulled the spacecraft together and swung the command and service module into exact alignment. With a loud bang and a shudder, 12 more capture latches pulled them into a hard dock. We're retracting. Budget. Very soon after they docked, Dave noticed the first serious problem on the mission. The SPS Delta V thrust switch light was lit. He immediately radioed mission control. The Delta V thrust switch light was incorrectly indicating that the spacecraft's main engine, the Service Propulsion System, or SPS, was firing. The crew would have to work closely with Mission Control to troubleshoot this problem, which it was thought could be due to a potentially serious short circuit. This was a mission jeopardizing problem. The SPS engine was used for all the future burns. Mid-course burns, the burn into lunar orbit, and the burn out of lunar orbit. It was the astronaut's ticket home. Any doubt as to whether it could fire raised the question as to whether the mission could continue. Or, if a short circuit caused the engine to ignite at the wrong time, the spacecraft would be propelled into an unknown trajectory. Trying to trace the exact location of the short was no easy task. It would take a careful coordination between all three crew members and the appropriate flight controllers in Houston. 
Mission Control obviously had very detailed diagrams of every aspect of the spacecraft. But on board the spacecraft, the crew carried only simplified diagrams of each of its systems. This meant the astronauts would have to follow precise step-by-step procedures worked out for them by people on the ground to set certain switches on or off and open and close certain circuit breakers while closely monitoring the response. Most of the electrical circuit breakers were within easy reach of the right couch, so coordinating them fell to Jim. The command module cockpit was arranged in three sections. The left section, closest to the commander, consisted mainly of all the controls and displays that enabled him to fly, control, and guide the spacecraft, including switching its engines on and off. Displays in front of the center section were devoted primarily to navigation and guidance, An additional area below the couch, called the Lower Equipment Bay, included a sextant and telescope for navigation. The right section was surrounded by switches for the spacecraft's electrical and environmental support systems and also communications. Very early in the Apollo program, the spacecraft was designed for in-flight maintenance. The plan was for the crew to carry toolkits and certain replacement parts, which they would be trained to fit. But as Apollo evolved, it became clear this was impractical because of the extra weight it would entail. Instead, the emphasis was placed on making sure all systems were so reliable that such repairs were not necessary. Consequently, All circuits within the spacecraft were hermetically sealed and could not be adjusted, altered, or modified by the crew. Soon the first order from Houston came in. It was to immediately open the circuit breakers so that a short circuit could not inadvertently light the engine and thrust the command and service module hard against the fragile Falcon. Houston, we'd like you to pull both SBS pilot valve circuit breakers on panel 8. Okay, that's being done. They're both open. Roger. This is Apollo Control. Apollo 15, now 7,460 nautical miles out from Earth. Velocity continuing to decrease, now 20,000 197 feet per second. Crew of Apollo 15 presently pressurizing the lunar module. Spacecraft systems engineers here in Mission Control Center are troubleshooting an unusual valve position indication on telemetry and in the spacecraft cockpit for the uh, valves and the propellant system for the service module propulsion engine, and are sorting out which malfunction procedure the crew should go through. While mission control puzzled over the problem, the astronauts connected umbilicals between the Falcon and Endeavor through the docking tunnel, checked the docking latches, and prepared to pull Falcon out of the spent third stage. 
First, they closed the docking tunnel hatch again, and Al armed the explosives that would cut Falcon loose from the third stage. Springs would push the lunar module out while they backed away with it firmly attached. Then they felt the thump as they separated and slowly drifted away from the last piece of the Saturn V. This is Apollo Control, some four minutes away from ejection of the command service module docked to the lunar module from the spent S-4B stage, which has now completed its non-propulsive vent. After the transposition, or after the ejection from the S-4B, Capcom will pass up to the crew the malfunction procedure to go through to track down and troubleshoot what the uh, slight anomaly is in the SPS valve position indications. Right, Colonel, we're uh, ready to get the power arms and logics on now. Stand by. Okay, logic's coming on. Logic one, logic two. Here go for pyro on. Roger. Okay, Houston, we'll step at 418. Roger, standing by. The Saturn V had given them a good ride. Now it would follow them on a slightly different path and crash into the lunar surface between two major craters, Copernicus and Ptolemaeus. In three days' time, just an hour after the crew was due to enter lunar orbit. Now it was time to work through some troubleshooting procedures with the ground for the faulty engine light. The crew moved various switches back and forth to see if the light flickered, and eventually, Dave gently tweaked a switch to halfway on, and the light flickered off. Dave theorized that a little solder ball probably got stuck in that switch, and he was right, although it couldn't be confirmed until they returned to Earth. A tiny piece of wire, less than a tenth of an inch long, somehow was stuck inside the switch, creating a short circuit. Such a tiny object, but it could have canceled a moon landing. Even after all the meticulous work that they had done at the plant in Downey, California, it had been impossible to catch everything. But now they knew the problem and that fortunately it was isolated to a small area and Mission Control came up with a workaround for it. Throughout the remainder of the first day and most of the second, the crew wove science experiments around everything they did, such as taking ultraviolet light photos of the ever-shrinking Earth. But perhaps the most strange experiment was the visual light flash phenomena. This experiment required the windows of the spacecraft to be covered and the crew to sit blindfolded during each of the three days of the flight to the moon, 
in order to monitor an unusual phenomena of intermittent light flashes. These flashes had been seen by other Apollo crews and NASA wanted to investigate them. One hypothesis was that the flashes were visual phosphenes caused by cosmic rays. There was some question as to whether the flashes were caused by high-energy particles traveling through the eyeballs or colliding in the retina of the eye or cerebral cortex, the visual center of the brain. Sitting there blindfolded, the crew gave a running commentary of which direction the flashes came and how many they saw in an hour. To the astronauts, the effect was like flash bulbs going off across a crowded sports stadium as these high-energy particles zapped through their skulls. The most relevant concern for space travelers was the possibility of lasting effects from these cosmic rays. Would this bombardment destroy the vision of someone who spent a year in space? Would it destroy the brain? Houston took pictures of the crew's eyeballs before and after the experiments. According to Scott, this was one of the most amusing experiences of the mission, though inexplicably, all the data recordings from the first attempt at this experiment were subsequently lost. Toward the end of the second day, another serious problem was discovered when it was time to inspect the lunar module. According to procedure, the crew purged and replenished Falcon's oxygen supply, then removed the hatch between the two spacecraft for the first time and floated the hatch into Endeavor to stow beneath the couches. Dave and Jim drifted inside the Falcon to begin work, and Al followed not far behind with a TV camera so the ground could see what was happening. It was tiny in there, barely room for two astronauts, so Al floated with his legs in the tunnel and watched. Then Dave saw a problem. The outer pane of glass on the tape meter had been shattered. He reported it to Mission Control. One little problem we ought to discuss with you before we go on. It seems that uh, somewhere along the way, the outer pane of glass on the tape meter has been shattered. I don't know whether you could get a picture of it on the TV or not. We'll get Al to try and uh, zero in. But uh, about 70% of the glass is gone. The inner pane of glass seems to be okay. There is no apparent damage to the tape meter itself. It's sitting on uh, 520 and 482. But uh, I don't know whether you can see it or not, but I'll trace the area which is missing my finger here and uh, it looks like the pieces we found I found one piece that's almost an inch in size and there's some smaller ones around we'll try to pick it up with a tape and then uh, get the vacuum cleaner later on to uh, get it all up so far that's the only obvious discrepancy we've found
Roger, Dave. We're reading it loud and clear. If the tape meter itself had been damaged, it would be a problem because this was a critical instrument used for landing the lunar module. Al could see floating pieces of glass when the bright sunlight shone through Falcon's windows and lit them up. The fragmented portion of the outer glass covering, which was about two inches wide and six inches long, had broken down into a number of slivers, which were now drifting loose in the cockpit. The accident probably occurred sometime during or after launch. Though the instrument seemed to be functioning, the broken glass posed a potential threat to the safety of the crew. Jagged shards of glass inside a small spacecraft could float into spacesuit hoses, get behind the panels through cracks and loose fittings and damaged instruments, and there was a real danger that the glass might get into their food supply or their eyes or even be inhaled into their lungs. The astronauts used sticky tape to collect the debris and carefully vacuum the surfaces inside the Falcon before it could spread further. However, Dave informed Houston that they could only find about 60 to 70 percent of what was broken. Houston 15, go. Looks like a very quiet night tonight. About the only question we've got for you at the present time is uh, your assessment of the glass cleanup. How did it go? Well, we got a, a few more pieces just by uh, looking around over there. Some of the smaller, like, or oh, I guess the largest piece we found was about a centimeter or so. And the uh, vacuum cleaner picked up uh, a bunch of small chips. I guess uh, in total we may have 60-70% of uh, the portion that broke, and I think we've really picked up all of this practical at this stage. Roger. Any special places this stuff seems to collect that you can tell? I think initially we found most of it was uh, up near the coas mounted behind the panel on uh, the left side, uh, near, near the forward part of the window, we found several several uh, larger pieces there, and also one large piece uh, just above the data file, which was about an inch long or so. Uh, and the small pieces seem to have been uh, drifting all about. Roger. As the crew headed back into Endeavor, Mission Control asked them to leave the vacuum cleaner running in the Falcon to catch any additional floating shards. During the next few days, the crew was involved in a continuous chase after the glass particles, even though most of the loose debris was sucked into the filters of the lunar module's environmental control system, which they also cleaned off using sticky tape. By the third day of the flight, the crew began looking a little scuzzy. They all brushed their teeth after each meal, but no one had shaved or washed. After all, they were in the cleanest environment possible, a spacecraft assembled in a spotless room 
the air conditioning system scrubbed out most of the odors. Fortunately, Jim had brought along a bar of soap, but not for washing. They put the soap inside a wet rag and whirled it around to make the cabin smell nicer. However, body waste still had to be eliminated, and there was the challenge. In space, everything floats. Urinating was relatively easy. The urine collection device was shaped like a condom connected to a tube that fed into a plastic bag. Opening a valve, one could flush the urine out into the vacuum of space where it froze into thousands of crystal flakes. However, defecation was more primitive. They used plastic bags with a six-inch opening surrounded by a circle of sticky tape. They would roll down their long johns, slap the bag on their behind, then they would wipe themselves and throw in the used tissue, seal the bag, knead germ-killing liquid into the whole mess, and roll the bag into the smallest possible shape. The crew would then write their name and the flight time on the bag and float it to a container that held all these gift-wrapped goodies. Later, some lucky doctor back on Earth would get to work through them all. With three astronauts sharing this tiny space, there was no privacy. And it wasn't pleasant to have someone float inches from your face with a bag stuck to his behind. That fragrant bar of soap was a welcome antidote and almost made them feel clean. Near the end of the third day, the crew encountered another serious threat, and this problem could have signaled the end of the mission had the crew not been able to deal with it promptly. At 61 hours and 12 minutes into the mission, Dave Scott noticed water droplets floating around the cabin. He immediately informed Houston. Hey, uh, Houston, 15. 15, go ahead. Okay, we're just getting ready to do some chlorination here, and we find we've got a leak around the chlorine port. Uh, with a cap on. It seems to be leaking water. And uh, you might take a look at that real quick and see if you can come up with uh, any ideas on the thing. The cap is on, and uh, Jim was just getting ready to uh, take the cap off and notice a little water. And in uh, trying to clean it up, it seems like we're accumulating a fair size, fair amount of water right now, right around the cap. Can you give, an, give us an estimate of how many drips per second it is? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty good flow right now. Uh, drips per second is hard to measure. It's a whole ball of water right around that valve right now. Raj, uh... What we need is a check valve that we can uh, close or get to to isolate that port if we can get one. Uh, Dave, I, I had a problem when I chlorinated uh, on launch day. 
And uh, when I first took the valve off, I had about what you've got, quite a strong flow. The cap, the cap stops it from flowing when you put it back on, and after I chlorinated, the flow decreased down to a very slow drip, uh, say, once a minute. Oh, this is a big run, Carl. Uh, the cap is on tight, and it, you can almost feel something flowing uh, beneath the cap. Okay, stand by. Lots of people thinking down here now. It was a big problem and would be a major safety hazard should water penetrate into the sealed system of electrical wiring. Most of the systems were cooled with water glycol, and if the water supplies ran low, this would seriously compromise the running of the spacecraft. Also, water was used for drinking and food preparation. If the problem couldn't be fixed, Apollo 15 would not be going to the moon. All the astronauts could do while Houston tried to figure out how to solve the problem was start trying to soak up the accumulating globs with towels. It took Houston only six minutes to come back with a set of instructions they believed would solve the problem. It did not. The water continued leaking at a steady rate. Okay, uh, Houston 15, got any suggestions yet? We need to uh, isolate this thing pretty quick. In just a minute. 15, this is Houston. Our recommendation is that on 351, you turn the water and glycol tank's pressure regulator off. On 352, turn the potable tank inlet off. 15, Houston. That should, uh, that should have taken the pressure off of the portable uh, water tank. Is it uh, helping the situation any? No, it's still leaking, Carl. Pretty good rate. It was nearly a quarter of an hour after Scott first noticed the problem before Houston came back with another solution for tightening a seal in the spacecraft chlorination system, which they believed was causing the problem. The crew pulled out the tool kit, tightened the fitting, and the leak stopped. We suspect that the uh, fitting there on your chlorine injector uh, uh, outlet is loose, and we have, a, uh, we have a procedure here for tightening it up. Okay, give it quick. Roger. Uh, we need tool number three and tool number W out of the tool kit. Okay, 3 and W out of the toolkit. Right, put number 3 in the tool W ratchet and insert tool 3 in the hex opening in the chlorine injector port. Okay, that's, that looks like where it's probably leaking. Once you've got tool number 3 well engaged in that injection port, turn it about a quarter turn. Okay, Houston, it looks like uh, that did it. Wonderful. Nice to have the quick response you guys have down there. Well, you'll never believe it, but after we had the leakage uh, on the morning of the 26th, somebody sat down and wrote up a special procedure just in case. Well, that was good thinking because uh, we about had a small flood up here. At last, it looked like the crew was in good shape. All they had to do was clip a few towels out to dry over the next few hours, the spacecraft took on the appearance of a laundry room as the towels were hung in the tunnel leading from the lunar module to the command module.
Although there was no sense of it in the spacecraft, they had slowed down to a relatively sluggish 3,000 miles per hour. Earth continued to pull on Apollo 15, but now the moon's gravity tugged more strongly than Earth's. As they fell toward the steadily growing moon, their speed began to increase. They would reach the moon the next day. It was now time to sleep. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 341 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Serious Problems. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on July 2nd. As usual, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. Did you know about all the problems encountered on the way to the moon? They're not generally known. I found them in the autobiographies of the crew and the Apollo 15 flight journal and Gene Krantz's book. It's important to remember that even though these problems seemed somewhat minor on the surface, the failure to address them could have ended the mission. Wasn't it funny that it always seemed to be Dave Scott who noticed the problem? (laughs) I thought NASA did an exceptional job on the leak fix. So I have a little bonus content on that. I'm going to read it to you now. The ECOM flight controller had taken it upon himself to go ahead and write a procedure to correct the problem after a similar small pre-launch leak had been noticed. So he just took it on himself to just go ahead and write the procedure in case there was a problem. A very good decision. Also, during the leak, a technician at the Cape, was driving home from work when he heard on the radio that Apollo 15 was having a water leak problem. He pulled over, got to the telephone, and called Mission Control to say he had detected a leak in one of the chlorination valves before launch and had worked on a procedure for stopping it from happening. It was his procedure that was transmitted to Apollo 15 in space. Now to me, this is a good illustration of the total awareness and dedication of the individuals who contributed to the Apollo program. Mighty impressive. One bit of trivia I've been trying to fit in since the launch of Apollo 15 You remember when the rocket was sitting on the pad, filled up, ready to go. Now, if the rocket 
had suddenly ignited prematurely, or an accident caused the Saturn V to explode on the pad, there was a plan for that. It was widely recognized that it could take several days for the ensuing fires to burn out if this occurred. Rescue teams would stand little chance of reaching those in the white room. So the plan was to use the rapid descent elevator, which was next to the elevator that brought up the crew to the top of the rocket. At the bottom of the rapid descent elevator, there was a large chute that fed directly into a deep underground bunker whose walls were lined with rubber to soften the blow of such a rapid descent. The bunker was stocked with enough food and supplies for the Apollo crew and the White Room staff to survive for a month should an inferno be raging overhead and access be blocked by thousands of tons of debris. So, there was a plan for that. (laughs) Okay, I mentioned also some uh, personal hygiene in this episode. As that question continues to come up, (laughs) I know I've covered it before, but it's been a while, and some of the new listeners have not heard me cover it. In Jim Irwin's biography, he had a pretty funny story about his first use of the plastic defecation bag. I encourage you to read that. (laughs) By the way, How would you like to be the doctor who had to sort out all that mess after the astronauts came home? Not me, buddy. (laughs) And finally, I want to once again apologize for the audio quality of the clips. I'm getting them from the Internet Archive, which was uh, their source was uploaded from NASA. And they come in little three-hour segments, and every three-hour segment seems to be just a little bit different in the sound of it. Some of it is is way too soft, some of it's too loud, some of it's distorted, some of it's muffled. It's tough to find a decent piece of that sound that that you're really proud of. (laughs) So I'm just going to say I apologize for that. Okay. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and you are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had a few contributions And I would like to thank Chris N. from the U.K. who donated at the Apollo level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Marie from Belgium donated at the Gemini level and earned a rocket emoji. Cameron B. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Cody T. donated at the Vostok level. 
Lords S donated at the Vostok level, and Alistair S from the UK increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 248. We lost one. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 349 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. I wanted to give you an update on the new addition to the SRH family. Our daughter is entering the third trimester of her pregnancy, and this is the start of an anxious period for us because all of our grandchildren were born prematurely, with the earliest arriving at 30 weeks. So here's hoping and praying all goes well in the weeks ahead. Now it's time for our drawing. Our winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Grant McCarran. Grant McCarran, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 349 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, An Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Warden, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, the Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for episode number 341. I'll try to have 342 posted by July 2nd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.